energizing your base with a debasing. The lead starts right now. President Trump today attempting to disavow after the fact a chant from his reporters, a chant that many Republicans even found chilling, after the president fired them up for days with his racist attack on four congresswomen of color. 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris will join us to respond. He's no longer just individual one. Today, piles of documents were unsealed in the case against President Trump's former fixer, potentially showing how close Donald Trump was to the scheme to silence a playmate and a porn star. Plus, Russia up to her old tricks, the warning about a viral app that makes you look old and how it might give Moscow information you do not want them to have. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with the politics lead. This afternoon, we got a combination of two of President Trump's more indecent characteristics, his willingness to lie to the American people and his tactic of using racist appeals to incite and excite his supporters. Send her back, they chanted. Now, you know the backstory. The president launched attacks on four Democratic congresswomen of color earlier this week, attacks that even Republican members of the House and Senate called racist. The president suggested that those four congresswomen should go back to the countries where they came from, though three of the four were born in the United States, and all four are American citizens. Last night, it all went one precipitous step further when the president and the crowd focused on Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who has made controversial comments herself, though... The president's lies about what she has said and demonizing of her prompted results last night that were so shocking, even some of the meekest and least critical Republicans in the House of Representatives voiced their discomfort, if not horror and revulsion. So this afternoon, President Trump suddenly claimed that he disagreed with those ugly chants. I'm not happy about when I hear a chant like that. And I've said that and I've said it very strongly. And the president told a demonstrable lie. The lie that he started speaking very quickly so as to end that chant. Why did you ask them to stop saying that? Well, number one, I, I think I did. I started speaking very quickly. It, it really was a loud, I disagree with it, by the way, but it was quite a chant. And uh, I felt a little bit badly about it. But I will say this, uh, I did, and I started speaking very quickly. That's a naked lie. When the chant started, President Trump stopped talking. He let the crowd go. And he did not resume until the chant died out on its own. But don't take my word for it. Take a look at the tape. Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. Thirteen seconds. For 13 seconds, the president of the United States stood there as a crowd of supporters screamed that he should send an American citizen, a woman who fled Somalia as a child refugee, now a member of the U.S. Congress, back to Somalia. This is all part and parcel of the president's 2020 reelection strategy. No more dog whistles, just naked racism, telling American citizens who are a different color to go back where they came from. It's a campaign tactic we need to be aware of as a tactic, notwithstanding the obvious immorality of bigotry. CNN's Pamela Brown starts us off today at the White House. Today, President Donald Trump claiming he disavows of that chant at last night's rally aimed at Somali-born and now U.S. citizen Congresswoman Ilan Omar. I was not happy with it. Uh, I disagree with it. The president pointing the finger at the crowd. 
I didn't say that, they did. And insisting his tweets and comments this week against Omar and three other Democratic congresswomen of color had nothing to do with it. But they were echoing what you said in your first tweet, that they should go back. Well, I don't think if you examine it, I don't think you'll find that. Trump also claiming he didn't let the chant last long. But the video shows the president pausing for 13 seconds as the chants grew louder and louder. Reacting today, Congresswoman Omar with strong words for the president. This president is racist. We have condemned his racist remarks. I believe he is fascist. This is not about me. This is about us fighting for what this country truly should be and what it deserves to be. Senator Lindsey Graham, a Trump supporter, defended the crowd against claims the chant was racist, implying if Omar were a Trump supporter, she wouldn't be told to leave. No, I don't think it's racist to say, was it racist to say, love it or leave it? I don't think a Somali refugee embracing Trump would not have been asked to go back. Let me be clear, my beef is uh, with policy, not personality. All of these congressmen won their election. They're American citizens. This is their home as much as mine. And uh, I believe their policies will change America for the worse. And that's the debate for me. That talking point, an apparent attempt to paint the progressive foursome known as the squad as the face of the Democratic Party, a possible window into Trump's 2020 strategy. We'll never, ever be a socialist country. It just won't happen. A vote for any Democrat in 2020 is a vote for the rise of radical socialism and the destruction of the American dream. Frankly, the destruction of our country. And President Trump's campaign held a conference call this morning with surrogates on how to respond to the controversy over the chant and lay out new messaging to keep the focus on attacking the squad. And even the White House's deputy press secretary implied the president couldn't clearly hear the chants because it was loud in the arena. Just some examples, Jake, of how officials have been trying to contain the fallout. Yeah, I remember President Trump saying he couldn't hear my question about whether or not he should disavow David Duke. Pamela Brown, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Karen Finney, um, President Trump says he disavows and disagrees with the chants, and he had this message for his supporters. Well, these are people that love our country. I want them to keep loving our country. And I think the Congresswomen, by the way, uh, should be more positive than they are. The Congresswomen have a lot of problems. Thoughts? Well, last night was frightening to watch. Never thought I would see that. I mean, as bad as it was in 2016, we are clearly uh, past the line. But we know what the strategy is because we lived through it in 2016. You know, it was the rise of the alt-right. It was the mainstreaming of hate speech and bigotry. It was very clear that was the strategy then, and it is the strategy now. This othering of these four women. And, you know, at its basic level, to my mind, this represents a fundamental change in this country. These four women represent a changing America. They represent different perspectives in this country and the reality that we are a minority-majority country. We're here. It's happened. We also know that fear of that change drove a lot of the people who voted for Trump in 2016, and he is counting on that and that race-baiting and fear-mongering to turn out for him. Again, I suspect... I hope that particularly those people in the middle who last time Mm -hmm. thought, well, let's see, how how bad could it be? I hope they were as horrified last night uh, as I know my fellow Democrats were. Scott Jennings, as a Trump supporter, let me ask you, are you not concerned 
that this approach, and I get the theory of the case that the president thinks that there are more votes there if he just gins up his base. There are even more base votes there. Are you not concerned um, that this actually will hurt President Trump? I mean, forgetting the immorality of it for one second, that this will hurt President Trump's chances in the suburbs of Philadelphia, in northern Virginia, in Colorado, North Carolina, et cetera. Well, I'm concerned that when you go down this path, you're showing a lack of confidence in the actual policy debate that I actually have a lot of confidence in. I think we can win on issues. I'm glad these four have been elevated to some degree because what they say and then what the Republicans say, I think we can win that debate. So when you go down a different path, I think it shows a lack of confidence. I mean, my view is they're American citizens. We all live under the same Constitution, the same Bill of Rights, and the same First Amendment. They have as much right to speak and be in politics as any of us sitting up here. I don't want to send her back. I want to send her to the nearest green room so she can put out her ideas and we can put out ours. I agreed with Lindsey Graham. That's where this has to be. When we go down a different road and show a lack of confidence in our ideas, that's what worries me. And people in the suburbs, who are they? College-educated, high-income White folks in the suburbs, they mm-hmm. stuck with Trump. They could get nervous about this. That's why we got to keep focused on issues. So you brought up Lindsey Graham. Uh, you agree with Lindsey Graham. And I assume you meant the Lindsey Graham that we saw in that clip just there where he said it needs to be a policy debate. I prefer to have that. Um, but this brings me to Tim Alberta, who's our guest, who has this uh, brand new book, uh, critically acclaimed. It's great. American carnage on the front lines of the Republican civil war and the rise of President Trump. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. When I was reading your book and then when I was preparing for the show, I was thinking that <laughs> Lindsey Graham uh, is a character at the beginning of the book and a completely different character at the end of the book. And in fact, uh, take a listen to the, these two clips of Lindsey Graham, uh, one from uh, today and one from 2015. No, I don't think it's racist to say. I don't think a Somali refugee embracing Trump would not have been asked to go back. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. He doesn't represent my party. It's almost like Lindsey Graham has been put through the machine of your book. Uh, This is the Republican Party before and after. Are you surprised uh, by what's happened to him and some other Republicans? No, I don't think you can be surprised, Jake. I mean, look, we could run down a long list of individuals who there's a before and after shot. Uh, Lindsey Graham is just another one. And we can't be surprised at what the president is doing. But I think at the same time, we can't be surprised by the response or in many cases lack thereof a response from many of these Republican elected officials. To the point that President Trump made earlier, we all remember at the convention in Cleveland in 2016 during the chance of lock her up. Do you remember what he did? He put his finger to his lips and he stopped them and he said, let's beat her instead. And it was a moment of restraint that was really striking, I think, to a lot of us because we said, wow, that's a new side of the president. We hadn't seen that before. He could have stopped that if he wanted to last night. He chose not to. And Lindsey Graham's response today speaks to, I think, what is the fundamental question about today's Republican Party under Donald Trump. We had a period where in politics and within the parties and between the parties, there was a philosophical intellectual debate of ideas, as Scott was saying. Today's fault line that runs through the GOP It's a binary choice. Are you with Donald Trump or are you against Donald Trump? It's no longer about the size of government. It's no longer Tea Party versus establishment, country club versus insurgency. It's none of that. It's do you stand with the president unequivocally or are you willing to come out publicly and distance yourself from him? And the people that have... They're taking their careers into their own hands. It's a huge gamble, and most of them aren't willing to take it. And, and Vivian, is there concern in the White House right now? Is that why the president seemed to be backing off what happened last night? Are his advisors worried? Well, the president has seemingly uh, seems to think that he's been backing off the comments for the last couple of days. And it's really interesting. And on, on Monday, when he came out uh, on the South Lawn and he made some comments, and when he was pushed by reporters, he whipped out a piece of paper and started to 
read off some talking points. Um, I think he believed that he had actually walked back the comments at that point, and that was what the White House was hoping for in essence. But a lot of people at the White House sort of pray that this will blow over in the way that other controversies had. There was a lot of backlash after Charlottesville happened uh, two years ago, uh, and a lot of internal turmoil. A lot of the Trump officials at the White House were very angered by that. Some of them even threatened to leave after that episode. But it blew over, and somehow he weathered the storm. And I think they're hoping Mm -hmm. that if they wait long enough, this will also blow over, just like some of the other controversies have. Some of them threatened to leave, but none of them left. But none of them (laughs) left. None of them left. Everyone stick around. (laughs) Up next, Democratic presidential candidate uh, Senator Kamala Harris will join us live to react to the president's comments. Plus, a big win for many Americans looking for a bigger payday. But don't start celebrating just yet. Stay with us. And we're back with our uh, politics lead, President Trump, now claiming that he tried to stop the chance of center back ringing through last night's Trump rally, even though evidence is that he did not, as he slammed Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, a U.S. citizen to came, who came to the U.S. as a refugee f- fleeing war-torn Somalia when she was a child. Joining me now on the phone is Democratic presidential candidate uh, Senator Kamala Harris of California. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for fitting uh, us in between your busy campaigning. Um, President Trump today uh, is now claiming that he tried to stop those chants. Uh, and even though he didn't try to stop those chants, he's also saying that he disagreed with them. Um, what do you make of it all? I just think they're empty words, Jake. You know, the, the chant was created not by the crowd, but by the president's tweets. And um, and that's obvious. It's, 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 you know, really not a debatable point. And I think it's just, it, it is clearly not a sign of real leadership. Uh, I think you, you have mentioned it. Your guests have mentioned it. Contrast it with, with a real American leader like John McCain, who during the, the, the campaign um, in 2008, he, he stood up. He spoke up. He was, you know, he understood as an American hero that the voice of someone who wants to be, much less is, the president of the United States, must be a voice, voice that is about elevating discourse that is about speaking to our better selves. And this president just keeps finding new lows. And, it, you know, I would like to say it's shocking, but at some point it's, it's badly predictable. Um, but well, it just keeps getting worse. What was your response to the rally? I assume you were not watching it live and somebody must have brought you images of it. What, yeah, what, I heard what, about it. What, what was your response? Well, it just, I mean, first of all, look, it's the same thing. He obviously is working out of the playbook that he he, he used to get elected, right? And, and again, focusing on it, the negative, focusing on, on divisions. And, um, you know, look, I, you know what I think is great? I think what is so great about today is you contrast what he did at that rally with what the Democrats just did in passing out of the House a $15 minimum wage. And I think that this is, this is the kind of thing that the American people will be aware of and they will see, which is one group is trying to put money in people's pockets. Meanwhile, this president is busy trying to sow hate and division among us. And, and you know, this is, and what he is doing, I've been traveling our country. I am campaigning. I am spending a lot of time in, in the in the beautiful diversity of America, and I will tell you something, this does not make people feel good. They don't like it. It is not reflective of who they are and what's in their hearts. And, you know, this is the other thing about real leadership. Real leadership should be some reflection of where people actually are. 
you know, we can disagree about policies and issues, but this is a fundamental point, which is who we are as Americans, our identity as Americans, in terms of our compassion for each other, in terms of valuing that out of many come one. Yeah. This guy doesn't get it. He doesn't you, um, get it. You're the, the child of, a, of a, an Indian immigrant and a Jamaican immigrant. Has anyone ever said anything like, go back where you came from to, to you or to your sister or to your parents? Of course, yes. And, I, you know, I was, just, I was just at an event in Iowa two days ago in Davenport, Iowa. And it was when all of this was fresh. And, and I, you know, it, it, like many of us, were upset about it. We were shocked that it happened. And I asked the crowd, I, just uh, spontaneously, I said, who, who, who here has heard that? And a number of hands went up. And it's not just it's the children of immigrants or immigrants, it's African Americans. You know, that, that whole go back to Africa. This is not new. This is part of the, the, the he is reviving dark chapters. He is, he is revising those moments that have not been the best, but in fact have been the worst of who we are. And I'll tell you, Jake, mm-hmm. when at that event I brought this up, part of what compelled me to speak the way I did is the person before me who spoke uh, was a woman who talked about how this was making her children feel. Yeah. And, 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 and that, again, we want to talk about the measure of a leader. When you make children afraid, you are not a good person. You are not a good person. And that's what this president continually does. So he, his, his, his words create a moment where there's a chance. God only knows what that creates in a, on a school ground. We just saw recently what it created in some convenience store in Illinois. Mm-hmm. People take, they take cues from the president because the president has a powerful yeah. microphone. Yeah. Whoever he or she may be, and it must be used in a responsible way, not like this. Senator Kamala Harris calling in from the campaign trail. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye. Presidents Donald Trump and Woodrow Wilson may have much more in common than having the same job, and this isn't necessarily a good thing. Stay with us. President Trump's racist tweets against four Democratic congresswomen of color are a sign of his 2020 campaign strategy, sources tell CNN. And of course, demagoguery and division is not a new tactic in American politics, though in the modern era, it is new for a president to do so, perhaps in such a blatant way. In the 1960s, Alabama Democratic Governor George Wallace tried to stop integration. I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Before that, in the 40s and 50s, Wisconsin Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy smeared innocence in a lie-fueled anti-communist crusade. One communist on the faculty of one university is one communist too many. Then go all the way back to 1915 when Democratic President Woodrow Wilson held and attended a White House screening of Birth of a Nation, a movie that glorified the Ku Klux Klan. But, of course, can demagoguery and division work today, as well as it has in the past. I want to bring in CNN presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. Uh, Professor Brinkley, thanks so much. When you hear President Trump tell those congresswomen of color to go back where they came from, when you hear the crowd chant, uh, send her back, is there any historical precedent that comes to mind? Not that to this degree where a president is that angry and that bitter, and, and particularly now in the 21st century. You know, we go back in as a presidential historian, you know, James Madison in 1817 had a colonization society trying to ship free blacks 
out of the United States back to Lib Liberia and Africa. We had a know-nothing party in the 1850s that was fiercely anti-immigrant. Um, Millard Fillmore, former president, was a member. They won governorships in states like Maryland and Maine. Uh, one could go on and document all of this in U.S. history, but we thought when Joe McCarthy got censored and got destroyed in the 1950s and George Wallace sort of um, disintegrated uh, after the Civil Rights Acts and he seemed to be a rearguard action figure, that maybe that we had gotten this out of our, our bloodstream. After all, we had a two-term African-American president and Barack Obama, but birtherism has led to this kind of send them back rhetoric of the president, and it's a, a dark stain on our national character. Now, going back some, some ways, Woodrow Wilson, uh, the Democratic president, uh, once called segregation a benefit. He defended slavery, saying slaves were uh, happy and well cared for. He resegregated the government. Is there a difference between um, what Wilson's comments were and, and using race to get yourself elected? Well, Wilson was from Virginia, and he, um, even though he was a, a, you know, a president of Princeton University, New Jersey governor, he knew how to play the race card to get votes, and that's what he was doing when he wrapped himself around the KKK back there. As you know, you with your David uh, Duke um, com interview when you asked President Trump about it, a lot of these white citizen council, white supremacy groups adore Donald Trump. And he refuses to distance himself from it. We saw it at Charlottesville, and we saw it this week with uh, the famous uh, tweet against the so-called squad. Um, and the fact that a president is doing this is just mind-boggling. We put him in the league with demagogues, Huey Long and George Wallace, Lester Maddox, Strom Thurmond. But those people ran kind of third-party activities. Um, they never really got the pulse of the United States. Donald Trump is our president. And it is awful late in the 21st century to be doing go back to where you came from cards to a nation filled with new waves of recent immigrants. All right, Professor Douglas Brinkley, always insightful. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's talk about this more uh, with the panel. Tim, uh, you write in the author's note uh, of your book, uh, American Carnage, quote, trailblazing as he might be. Trump is not the creator of this era of national disruption. Rather, he is its most manifest consequence. What do you mean? Well, Jake, I wrote the book not necessarily to hold up a mirror to Donald Trump or even to hold up a mirror to the Republican Party, but to hold up a mirror to all of us, to a, a political culture that really invited the ascent of Trump in many ways. Uh, we've been living through a, a period of incredible polarization and national disunity, I think dating back at least a decade and a half, if not much longer. And look, obviously, we've heard a lot today about the parallels between uh, Donald Trump's remarks at this rally last night and the chance, and then the chance against Hillary Clinton to lock her up in 2016. I actually think that that's the wrong parallel. I go to Charlottesville, and mm -hmm. the chance of you know Jews will not replace us. I had a conversation shortly after Charlottesville with Senator Tim Scott, uh, the first black man to ever serve in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. So obviously a figure as a Republican. Yes. No. No. The only. Really. The, yes. The only. Not, Both? Yes. Wow. Yes. And so, so Senator Scott, obviously, a figure of major historic proportion. Wow. And we were talking about those chants, and he said, you know what I see in Charlottesville? You know what I hear from those chants? Fear. Hmm. And, and it's important to recognize America is living through an unprecedented and sweeping demographic transformation right now. And when you 
layer, that demographic transformation on top of a decade of tremendous cultural turmoil, uh, everything from same-sex marriage to transgender bathrooms, and then you layer that on top of the economic dislocation, millions sure. of jobs lost in middle America and the manufacturing hubs, and then you layer on top of that all of this political disruption and the zero-sum partisanship. This was a powder keg waiting to explode. We didn't know who was going to light the fuse for the dynamite. Trump obviously did, but this was a long time coming. So, uh, Vivian, a former Jeb Bush aide, Tim Miller, who has been rather outspoken against President Trump, we should point out. He tweeted, quote, I'd say to my friends in D.C. going along with Trump, imagine how this video of the president leading a white mob in a send her back chant targeting a black refugee is going to look in your kids' high school government or history classes. This hatred has got to be stopped. But the truth of the matter is a lot of politicians don't look at things in terms of how is this going to look in 40 or 50 years they look at how is this going to look no next November and can I get reelected? This is definitely a time for self-reflection for the Republican Party and a lot of them having to kind of grapple with this sense of he is the leader of the party right now. How are we going to proceed? And a lot of them would rather just lay low and let this whole thing go until or turn a blind eye, at least, to mm -hmm. what's been happening so long as they could get their policy agenda through. And a lot of them, I mean, Scott was saying earlier, a lot of Republicans would like to just focus on policy. But unfortunately, they're having also to answer for the president. A lot of them don't want to do that. It's very important to realize that when the House vote happened this week uh, and they were passing a resolution, a lot of Republicans did want did not agree with this, but they also chose not to vote for mm -hmm. the racist comment. Um, and Scott, let me ask you, you talk about how you prefer the president to talk about the substance. In a way, I could understand, not condone, but understand why President Trump would be doing this if unemployment was at 15 percent. Uh, and, and everything was going poorly. But the economy is doing great. He has a record he can run on. Why not focus on that? Not only that, but the Democratic Party up until this weekend and this week was on the brink of all-out civil war in the House Democratic Conference, and he sort of... They were fighting. Yeah, he, he, he sort of got... They were fighting. They were fighting. They were fighting. They were fighting. You know, you've yeah. talked to these folks. And so... Sometimes you have to understand when you're winning. I mean, in the most recent ABC News Washington Post poll, he scored his highest job approval. You pointed out the good economic numbers. He has all the advantages of incumbency, time, resources, no primary. The other party is having a messy primary. They're fighting in the House. It could be a lot like the period between 10 and 12 when the Republicans couldn't pull it together and Barack Obama used the time right. and power of incumbency to go on and coast a re-election. But these kinds of moments call into question whether that advantage is going to be stunted. So I want the president to focus on his record. I think he can win on his record. Remember, he can even lose a couple of states he won and still get reelected. Right. Uh, and Karen, very quickly, if you could, nothing unites the Democratic Party more than President Trump attacking them in a racist way. Well, I think at this point we might be seeing that nothing will unite most of the country more than these kind of racist tweets and comments. All right. Coming up. Nearly 900 pages of newly released documents revealing that the two top presidential aides Michael Cohen talked to moments before paying off porn star and director Stormy Daniels. That's next. In our national lead now, new revealing details about just how big of a role the president and his campaign team may have played in those hush money payments during the 2016 election to cover up his alleged affairs. This all coming from nearly 900 pages of court documents unsealed Today, in that case against the president's former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, the investigation into the Trump world's role in campaign finance violations has been closed 
as of this week. I want to bring in CNN's Kara Scannell, who's been going through these new documents, as well as uh, uh, former federal prosecutor uh, Shan Wu. So, uh, Kara, what, what information are you learning from the documents? Well, I think there are two kind of big takeaways here. The first one is this is the first time the government has ever identified Donald Trump by name in any documents. It's always, always individual one. Exactly. Yeah. It's always been individual one. And then what we see in this is just at what key moments during this alleged campaign finance scheme that Cohen pleaded guilty to, Trump is there at critical moments. I mean, this begins after the Access Hollywood tape is um, made public in October 7th of 2016. The very next day, we see Hope Hicks connects Cohen with Trump on a phone call. That kicks off this chain of events where Cohen is actually acting as a middleman. Phone calls between David Pecker of American Media, the publisher, and Donald Trump and Hope Hicks. And this one key moment, you see he speaks, Cohen speaks with David Pecker, then immediately talks to Donald Trump for eight minutes. Hmm. Then a couple of phone calls later with other AMI executives, um, Cohen receives a text (laughs) message saying that Keith is willing to do this. That's Keith Davidson, Stormy Daniels' lawyer. So that connects the dots here between the initial phone call and that this had to do with Stormy Daniels. But then it continues because then on October 26, Cohen has two phone calls with Donald Trump. And then 30 minutes later, he begins the process of wiring the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels and her lawyer. Then two days later, Cohen speaks again to Donald Trump on the phone. Mm -hmm. And that's the same day that Cohen is finalizing the paperwork to make this settlement stick. So you see there Donald Trump is actually on the call with Michael Cohen during this process. And according to the FBI, Cohen, on average, was speaking to Trump about once a month. So this shows a big increase in communications during this critical period. And uh, uh, Shan, uh, President Trump obviously denied knowing anything about this hush money uh, uh, to payment to, to Stormy Daniels. Uh, take a listen. ask Michael Cohen. Michael's my an attorney, and you'll have to ask Michael Cohen. Do you know where he got the money to make that payment? I don't know. No. So, the theory of the case and these documents suggest that that's just a complete lie. And actually, Rudy Giuliani basically had came, come out right. previously and said uh, that wasn't true. Uh, what does this mean in terms of President Trump's culpability, say, theoretically after he leaves office? I think although you're going to hear him and his team spinning that this was a good day because there was no further expansion of charges, it leaves the culpability squarely where it was when it started, right on Trump's shoulders. And that, as Kara was summing up, that is a really tight nexus of calls and texts, and there's just no way around that. So where it leaves him is if the Southern District was so inclined, and if the powers that be at Maine Justice at that time were so inclined, that's a tailor-made case just ready to go. And Kara, what's what's the significance and what's the presence of uh, Kelly and Conway, Hope Hicks in this? What does it mean? Well, for Hope Hicks, you do see that she has had a number of these calls and in the filing that the prosecutors made when they were submitting this in court today, they said that they did look into whether anyone had given a false statement or testimony. And in the FBI affidavit, it notes that Hope Hicks told a different FBI agent that she wasn't aware about these Stormy Daniel payments until November, one month after all these calls. But sources tell us that there is no indication that Hope Hicks is going to face any charges in this. Now, Kellyanne came up in a different way where you see during the series of calls where Cohen has just finalized the settlement terms, those paperwork, he's trying to reach Trump. He can't reach him. He ends up reaching Kellyanne and they speak for six Mm. minutes, but it ends there. So you don't really know how significant or meaningful that is. Interesting. The plot thickens. All right. Thanks once once again, Kara Skinnell-Shan. We'll appreciate it. It is almost time to find out which Democratic candidates will face off against each other. We are going to handicap the possible matchups next. 
In our 2020 lead, we're just hours away from learning which presidential hopefuls in the Democratic Party are going to face off against which other presidential hopefuls uh, on which nights of the upcoming second Democratic debates. Now, tonight, CNN is going to host a live draw to determine the lineups for next week's debates in Detroit, Michigan, or rather they're on the July 30th and 31st. CNN's political director, David Chalian, joins our panel right now. David, how is this going to unfold tonight? So, uh, Jake, as you noted, there are 20 candidates who have qualified for this second round of debating uh, in Detroit. Uh, So now we've got to split them between the stage. And and one thing that we wanted to ensure was that uh, and that the DNC, I think, wanted to ensure as well is that there was no undercard debate as there was in previous uh, cycles on the Republican side last cycle. So the way that we are making sure that doesn't happen, we're going to split it up into three draws tonight. So there's going to be a first draw. And that'll be 10 candidates who are uh, lower polling candidates in the race. Uh, you see them there up on the screen. Then there's going to be a second draw. That's going to be a middle tier of candidates, the, six of them. And these are folks that averaged since the Miami debate between 1% and 10% in the eight qualifying polls that were released since then. And then there's going to be the final draw. And this is what really will guarantee sort of equal distribution of the candidates because you're going to have the final four candidates there, Biden, Harris, Warren Sanders splitting two and two uh, across the debate stage. You remember in Miami, uh, the night was were split. Four of the top five were on one stage, right. and Elizabeth Warren had a night to herself in terms of top five and it helped candidates. Her a lot. And it did. And this now that won't be able to happen this time. We will evenly split the field uh, where Democratic voters are supporting them right now across those two stages. All right, obviously, we'll see what happens tonight at eight o'clock, starting at eight o'clock. Vivian, you're hoping for a Kamala Harris-Joe Biden rematch. Well, especially against the backdrop of what we've seen the last couple of days with the president's racist remarks and how they deal with it. Obviously, with Joe Biden, he had a little bit of difficulty on that kind of subject, and Kamala Harris really shined when she spoke very personally about these issues. And so it would be interesting to see how they do on this topic in particular. I'd also like to see uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I realize that you say... They might agree on too many things. Gonna, I think they're just going to love each but other But they're going to have to distinguish themselves from each yeah. other, too. And it's going to be very interesting to see if they're able to do that and how they kind of go at each other. Maybe. I just I just think I, that I she won't criticize him because she's doing well. She's taken all his voters. And it's, it's you know, it's tricky for him to criticize her. I but think, she has to yeah. make sure that he has to make sure she doesn't take all those exactly. votes. Exactly. That's, that's true. That's, what, are you, what are you looking for? I am curious to see. So the Cory Booker's campaign thinks that this is going to be they, they know this is a moment they need to really have have a moment. And apparently they're kind of taking a look at Mayor Pete. So if they end up on the stage together, I think it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. Then I also want to see Harris and Biden. You I do. Well, we want to rematch. Let's see the let's see the rematch. And let's see um, Elizabeth Warren and Biden talk about the economy. I think it'd be a fascinating conversation. Oh, yeah. There is, you know, there's a lot of bad blood between them dating back to mm-hmm. the, that uh, banking bill. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The credit card bill. What about you? Well, first of all, I think Joe Biden's going to be like a zebra that wandered up to the wrong watering hole. There's going to be a bunch of alligators ready and waiting because they saw what Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris was able to do by taking him on. She's been the flavor of the month ever since. And so somebody's going to try to recreate that magic. It could be on a rock, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think that issue is still laying out there and he's got to answer for it at some point in this primary. I also want to see what the governor of Montana can do. Bullock, he'll be the only rural sort of, you know, uh, spokesman on the stage. And as somebody from rural America, I want to see if 
he's going to be willing to sort of stand up to some of the nonsense and say this isn't going to fly in middle America. Uh, and, and do you think that Biden is going to be a real target this time? Uh, he was a little bit last time. Uh, he was, and he will be. He's the front runner in the race, so I think that person always is a target. Uh, listen, I think Joe Biden, the stakes are pretty high here for him to have a better debate than he had last time. Now, that may not be saying much. He had a pretty poor performance, I think, overall in Miami, but he can't afford a, a second poor performance. Uh, he's got to come in and really show that he understands that that didn't go over well and that he is prepared to fight for this nomination. Uh, I think that's one thing that's going to be critical to but watch. I think part of that is going to be he has to figure out how to have a moment. He certainly cannot go after Kamala Harris the way she went after him for a whole host of reasons. But he's got to figure out some way to break through, whether it's a big idea or a big moment or a contrast point. I'm excited to see what that's going to be. Oh, you know, we haven't talked about is somebody who used to be the flavor of the month was on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, Beto O'Rourke. Oh, Beto O'Rourke, but we we saw that he really fell short with uh, his uh, exchanges with Julian Castro on immigration in particular. And so I think that that's going to be something that he's really going to want to come back fighting on is the topic of immigration, especially if he could take on Julian Castro. I'm sure he would love that. But anyone at this point, I think that's where he's going to want to shine this time around. Okay, and we did see uh, Castro have have something of a breakout moment by taking on Beto O'Rourke. So Mm -hmm. even though people love to say they hate negative campaigning, uh, if there's a good shot, people like like, they like it. Beto's lucky y'all put him in the second tier. That has not been... uh, (laughs) I don't think that was us. We we didn't do that. (laughs) That's just That's the best thing that's happened to him. That's the best thing that's happened to him in a long time. (laughs) He he did it. Let me just tell you something. It's it's not going the right direction. All right, the candidate lineups are going to be revealed in the draw for the CNN Democratic debates again. That's tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. And then, of course, on July 30th and 31st, the candidates are going to face off in the CNN Democratic presidential debates hosted by Dana Bash, Don Lemon and myself. Coming up, new concerns about a popular app that makes you look old. The Russia Connection. That's next. In our money lead today, today, the House passed, uh, passed a bill to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. That's more than doubling the current minimum wage, which sits at $7.25 an hour. But... The legislation is unlikely to go anywhere in the Senate, which is Republican controlled. The last time the minimum wage was raised was a decade ago in 2009. In our tech lead today, new security concerns about a viral photo app with millions of users. It's called Face App, and it uses artificial intelligence to edit your photos and, for example, make you look decades older. It actually is owned by a Russian company, a company that says it has no ties to the Russian government and that it's not sharing or selling your data, but authorities in the U.S. are not convinced. Senator Chuck Schumer is asking the FBI to investigate, and the Democratic National Committee is warning presidential campaigns, don't use the app. They're a little gun-shy, I guess. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.